Previously, we were only able to get through Paul's greeting in his letter to Titus, and that's no problem. That's nobody's fault. (laughs) I was simply captivated by Paul's comments regarding eternal life, which he said God promised before time began. And I was challenged not only to love the gift of eternal life, but also the gift of time, and specifically God's timing in particular, as well as the gift of Scripture, because it reveals our Maker's mind and motive. So I'm grateful for eternal life. I'm grateful for time, that rule by which we measure experiences, and I'm thankful for the Word of God, for Scripture. We have the Bible. God is looking for men and women who love Him and who love the Word of God enough to speak up for it and to speak out against those who pervert it. That's where we pick up today in Paul's letter to Titus chapter 1. I'm going to start off by reading verses 5 through 9. The Word of God reads like this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the doing of his word. So this was an arrangement that Paul and Titus made beforehand. Titus knew exactly why Paul left him there in Crete. And if you're wondering what was lacking, because Titus was there to make up for what was lacking, godly leadership was lacking. He wanted him to appoint elders in every city, just as Paul commanded. It's possible there weren't any elders in Crete, but it's more likely there just weren't enough elders. And when we look at that word elders, it's from one Greek word, presbyteros, usually references older men. And here's the criteria. You look to verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, more specifically that husband of one wife can mean he's a faithful man. He's faithful to his wife. He's a one-woman man. He's He has his house in order. His children aren't accused of being riotous <laughs> or all over the place. Throughout the Bible, God calls men to lead. I mean, there are occasions when women lead, but if you look, as in the case with Deborah, Barak failed to go into battle as God had commanded, and he said, no, no, only if you go with us, only if you lead us, he told Deborah, the prophetess. And she told him, hey, the glory, just so you know, the glory is going to go to a woman. And the glory went to her, and it also went to Jael, the lady who hammered that tent peg through their enemy's head right there in her tent. Nevertheless, you know, God calls men to lead. And in the church, in the New Testament, we see God ordains men to lead the local church, and specifically to lead the 
corporate church gatherings when you gather together as a, ch- as a church there. This really isn't a matter of competence or capabilities or lack thereof. It's not a matter of men being better than women in this case. It really comes down to God's design, the order of God's design. There are two kind of points of views when it comes to men and women gender roles or positions or callings in the church. One of those views is referred to as egalitarian or egalitarianism, and that means that women, men and women are the same, that women are equal in every way in the sense that they can fulfill every role and any role that a man fills. For example, pastoral leadership. Whereas the complementarian point of view says that God made man for specific roles and callings, and he created woman to accompany man, as we see in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, that men and women complement each other. Wives complement their husband, husbands complement their wives, and so there's this, this, this duality, this dual kind of team thing going Here's the thing, you know, I want to be egalitarian when it comes to individual calling and church government. I do. Uh, I'm a mama's boy, through and through, raised by my mom. She was mom and dad to me, largely, uh, through my teen years. Thankful for my stepdad, but at, at that time, my mom really wore the pants, if you will. And, you know... I'll tell you, I've had some of the best leaders I've had in service uh, was a woman. I think of one woman in particular, a naval officer, was one of the best pilots I've ever flown with as a search and rescue guy. And um, solid leadership. So can't take anything from these ladies. So I, I want to be egalitarian when it comes to individual calling and church government. But careful reading of the scriptures leads me to be complementarian in practice. Men are to lead. It's just, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, the head of Christ is the father, the head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man. I think it's important at this point to kind of turn the page, a few pages over, at least in my Bible, and look to Paul's comments to Timothy. When Paul commanded Timothy to appoint leaders in the church. It says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. I'm going to explain in a few, few minutes here what bishop is, because there's elders and there's bishops. But a man who desires this position, uh, he desires a good work. So it's okay to desire to be in pastoral ministry, to be a bishop in the church. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice or not a new believer, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, those who aren't in the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare 
of the devil. Likewise, deacons, and that describes people who run to and fro in the church and get stuff done. Deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the reading every word there. Just see here very clearly, God has called bishops and deacons these positions to be filled by men. It's very clear. And you might say, well, maybe that was just, you know, how it was in the first century and things have developed in time, but that's not, that's just not what we see throughout the Word of God. It's not a cultural thing because each and every time, um, well, most most times we see these references made, uh, there are other references too, but Paul refers back to the order in the garden. You know, in fact, just right before this passage, Paul was saying he doesn't even permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence. Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, again, it doesn't make it doesn't mean that women are are bad or worse than than men. It's just that the order that God has in mind is that men are called to lead. And that specifically involves leadership in the church, <clears throat> pastoral leadership. So going back to Titus, you know, Paul makes reference to bishops. He says a bishop, in verse 7, must be blameless. Bishop here is episcopus. <clears throat> it's an overseer. It's synonymous with what we often refer to as pastor. So you have presbyteros. Have you ever heard of Presbyterians and Episcopalians? These often refer to the church government of these two denominations. One is a church of of elders, right, who make decisions in the church. And the others might be Presbyterian in the sense that they have maybe a senior pastor. And there's some other theological things come along with Presbyterianism. But the point here is the bishop is episcopus overseer and an episcopus this bishop pastors must be blameless he says as a steward of god not self-willed not quick-tempered not given to wine it means not an alcoholic not violent not greedy for money but hospitable a lover of what is good sober-minded just holy self-controlled holding fast the faithful word this is one of the passages we should refer to when considering those interested in pastoral leadership. Frankly, it's one of the passages the Holy Spirit uses in my life. It calls me to take personal inventory as a pastor. Is my house in order? Are my children, at least those still at home, accused of dissipation or insubordination? Are they riotous and unruly? The New Living Translation says, May they not be wild or rebellious. Am I blameless or self-willed, selfish? Am I quick-tempered? Am I an alcoholic? Your pastor, your church leaders 
are more likely to be blameless, to be a one-woman man, to have obedient kiddos, when they are, as Paul said in verse 9, holding fast the word, the faithful word, as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. In other words, a man is considered qualified for ministry when both his life and his doctrine, his lifestyle and his teachings or the thing he believes, his belief system, when both are sound, only then is he able to assist others who need guidance and correction. And as it turns out, there were many in the church at Crete who needed guidance and correction. And that was the task before Titus and exactly Paul's intent for leaving Titus there in Crete. Because there were some people who needed some guidance and correction. We pick up in Titus chapter 1 and verse 10 here. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households teaching things that they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Well, there were people who needed guidance and correction in the church. In this case, we see especially those of the circumcision in verse 10. Some Jewish believers in Jesus insisted the Gentile believers, the non-Jewish believers, practice Jewish customs and keep the law of Moses, starting with circumcision. These people are called the Judaizers. Paul refers to them as the circumcision. All right? So if you want to be a real Christian, the Judaizers will tell you, you have to keep the law, the law of Moses. You have to keep the customs, the Jewish customs. You have to be Jewish first. Experience the full Christian experience. You've got to be Jewish. Paul wanted Titus to identify godly men to stop these guys. It wasn't enough that these Judaizers just be quiet because they were in the church. They were going to have these kinds of sidebar conversations with people at least. Paul said in verse 11, their mouths must be stopped. Action must be taken. They were turning entire households away from the faith because of their false teaching and their dishonest behavior. I mean, they may have even been charging others for the service of, of circumcision. And Paul felt so strongly against Judaizers in the church that when he addressed this matter in his letter to the Galatians, he said in Galatians 5.12 that he wished that they would cut their own genitals off, that they would emasculate themselves. The people of Crete were an interesting bunch. <laughs> These Judaizer Cretans were an interesting bunch. Paul says in verse 12, 
One of them, one of the Cretans themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> this is where I say, he said, what? I mean, Paul comes in saying that even their own, their own people say of themselves that they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul quotes 6th century BC Cretan poet Epimenides, who had some scathing things to say about his own countrymen. For example, regarding a tomb the Cretans made for their chief god Zeus, Epimenides said, quote, They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and have our being. Interesting, because Paul, end quote, I should say, Paul referenced this saying. He quotes Epimenides and even uh, likely quotes two other prophets or, or philosophers of the day, um, Eratus and Cleanthes, in Acts chapter 17. So it's, Paul was well read. He was aware of his culture. He knew what was going on. But Paul said the Cretans are known for being liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, this is the same Paul we see in Acts who, you know, accuses Elymas, who goes by Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer, tries to interfere with Paul and Barnabas' ministry as they were trying to share the gospel with one of the proconsuls, one of the leaders there. And uh, Paul turned to this guy, Bar-Jesus, and says, you son of the devil, you son of all unrighteousness. I mean, again, it sounds like, in, today, in today's vernacular, it sounds like name-calling. This, these passages really don't give us license necessarily to go around calling people or calling people groups, names. But we can't stray from the facts. Be careful. Don't let culture influence the gospel. Don't let culture influence the truth. Some people are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, drunkards, adulterers, murderers, and so on. Recently, in conversations I've had with some folks about the overturn of Roe versus Wade, I'm shocked, man. I'm, I'm shocked by how many professing believers in Jesus affirm the murder of babies in the womb, or who believe the developing human inside his or her mommy's womb is no human at all until it, with air quotes there, it takes their first breath. Look, name-calling or not, those who consent to this are willfully ignorant, murderous, abominable, and we are guilty to ignore these kinds of lies when they come from other professing believers in Christ. We might expect these kinds of thoughts and beliefs to be held by people who don't profess the name of Christ. But when it comes from other professing Christians, we have to say something. Or we're, we're guilty. We are guilty 
Regarding these liars and beasts and gluttons, Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true. It's true what Epimenides said. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Remember, Paul said their mouths must be stopped. It wasn't about it wasn't about shutting them down so that they would be crushed and silenced forever. The aim for these brothers whose theology was tainted by sin and selfish gain was that they, they individually and as a church would be sound in the faith. Say something. Their mouths have to be stopped. Rebuke them sharply, he said. 18th century pastor John Charles Rye, we usually know him as J.C. Ryle. John Charles Ryle, I should say. J.C. Ryle. He said, If I say hard things, it is not because I do not love you. I write as I do because I desire your salvation. He is your best friend who tells you the truth. Truth must be spoken, however condemning it may be. End quote. I'm going to read that again. If I say hard things, it's not because I do not love you. I write as I do because I desire your salvation. He is your best friend who tells you the truth. Truth must be spoken, however condemning it may be. End quote. So powerful. Saying the truth, saying hard things. We can say hard things with a vindictive, hurtful spirit. But we can also say hard things with a spirit of boldness, assertiveness, courage. It takes moral courage to speak the truth in the face of opposition or when we know it may risk our friendship. But best friends tell the truth. It has to be spoken. Like J.C. Ryle said, however condemning it may be. Paul says... Watch out for these guys in verse 14. These folks are giving heed to Jewish fables, commandments of men who turn from the truth. There's all kinds of poison in the church. With that in mind, we've got to be careful. We don't pollute the gospel and Christian living with seemingly helpful yet worldly influences. I'm sure when these Judaizers were there amongst the other Christians. Those Gentile Christians were probably like, wow, it must be so cool for you to be a Jew and be waiting for your Messiah your whole life and then finally realize that Yeshua, you know, Jesus is your Messiah and you have all this culture and all these feasts to kind of point to Messiah. That's really, really neat. Tell me more. So it's likely these Judaizers, circumcision, folks were, you know, that they had some things to offer. But we have got to be careful, right? Don't pollute the gospel. Don't pollute Christian living with seemingly helpful yet worldly influences. If you or your church has, if you've incorporated certain rituals you find helpful in your church, certain prayers that you pray, maybe repeatedly or at a certain time during your get-togethers. If you have certain songs you know, if hymns are your jam, you know, if you have a certain order of service, that's fine. So long as it doesn't contradict Scripture or lead us to believe that our salvation is more secure 
as if the cross of Christ was not enough. Or by having these certain prayers and certain songs or a certain order of service that that makes us more Christian or better than others. When it comes to music, you know, some people get so bent on hymns. I, I want a hymn, hymns only church. I don't like that contemporary Christian music. Well, hymns were at one point contemporary Christian music. When they were new, the first time they were introduced to the church, that was contemporary to them. But if you're the kind and that you need hymns only in your worship and your faith experience, then go to a church that only practices or only sings hymns, rather. But don't look down on others who don't sing hymns. Be careful. We've got to be careful. Our rituals and our customs don't create an elitist inner circle. We do that with the clothing that we wear to church. You know, suits only, dresses only for the ladies. Don't wear pants. That's not Christian. It's not modest. Okay, if you need to attend a church where you, men wear suits and women wear only dresses, then go to that kind of church. But don't push that on other people. You won't find that in the Bible. You won't. If you believe that speaking in tongues is the sole evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life or in the lives of others, I disagree with you. I do believe in the practice of tongues, praying in tongues, the interpretation of tongues, but I don't believe it's the sole evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there are churches who put so much emphasis on speaking in tongues. I, I've had, I have a friend whose aunt literally lost her hair. Patches of her hair fell out because she was attending a church that put a lot of emphasis on speaking in tongues and she just never spoke in tongues and felt like this horrible Christian. Like she wasn't good enough. I tell you, none of us are good enough on our own. We are only good enough because Christ is good enough and we find ourselves in Christ Jesus. We humans find a way to mess things up. Like Paul says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. For example, if you've got a dirty mind, everything you look at will be sexualized. As for those Cretan Judaizers, they likely saw every person and resource in the church as an opportunity for personal and selfish gain. And they call themselves Christian. Like Paul says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. If Paul or Titus were to stand face to face with these people today and say, friend, your behavior is unbecoming of a Christian, you are abominable and disobedient and disqualified for every good work in the church. I'm certain most would say, Paul, Titus, that was the most unchristian thing to say. I can't believe you have resorted to name-calling. <laughs> Some, however, might respond to that sharp rebuke. They might say, you know what? Man, you're right. I'm so sorry. I need to stop my shenanigans 
and I need to get right with the Lord. Friends, be bold, be courageous, stand up for the truth, speak out against things that are not true, things that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In closing, let's hold fast the faithful word as we have been taught. You know, may our lives and our doctrine be in sync, be in aligned with one another, that we would be able and qualified then by sound doctrine, right, by those truths given us by Jesus and passed on by the apostles to exhort, to strongly encourage and convict. To convict means to declare guilty, to point out the guilt. We need to make sure our stuff is wrapped tight and that that we're not guilty of the same thing if we're going to convict others of being guilty, but we've got to be able to exhort and convict those who contradict. And if we profess to know God, may our works, our words, and our deeds affirm our profession to be true. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the ministry that you had there in Crete to the brothers and sisters in Christ there and for Titus and his ministry, going to believe that he was successful in his endeavors. May we be may we be successful in our endeavors as you call us to be godly men and women, holding fast to the faithful word that is not limited to men. May all of us, men and women, children in the body of Christ, hold fast the faithful word and and do so that we may be able, Lord, qualified in Christ to exhort and convict, to apply sound doctrine in our own lives and to share these truths with others. Lord, thank you for who you are and for your faithfulness to finish the work you've just begun in us. In Jesus' name.